Darkcast Network. Out of the shadows comes the best of indie podcasts. The Red Barn murder was an 1827 killing in England. A young woman, Maria Martin, was shot dead by her lover, William Corden, in the Red Barn, a local landmark. Letters to the Martins' family was sent claiming that she was well, but after her stepmother spoke of having dreamed that Maria had been murdered, her body was the next year discovered in the barn. The story provoked numerous newspaper articles, songs, and plays. The plays, ballads, and songs remained popular throughout the next century and continue to be performed today. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Maria Martin was born July 24, 1801, and was the daughter of Thomas Martin, a mole catcher in Polstead, Suffolk, England. In March 1826, when she was just 24 years old, she formed a relationship with a 22-year-old man named William Corder. Martin was an attractive woman, and relationships with men from the neighborhood had already resulted in two children. One child, belonging to Corder's older brother, Thomas, died as an infant, but the other, Thomas Henry, was still alive at the time that Corder met Martin. Thomas Henry's father, Peter Matthews, did not marry Martin, but regularly sent money to provide for the child. Corder, who was born in 1803, was the son of a local farmer and had a reputation as something of a fraudster or a ladies' man. He was known as Foxy at school because of his sly manner. Corder had fraudulently sold his father's pigs, although his father had settled the matter without involving the law. But Corder had not changed his behavior. He later obtained money by passing a forged check of $93 that he had helped local thief Samuel Beauty Smith steal a pig from a neighboring village. When Smith was questioned by the local constable over the theft, he made a prophetic statement concerning Corder, saying, quote, I'll be damned if he will not be hung for some of these days. Porter had been sent to London in disgrace after his fraudulent sale of pigs, but he was recalled back to Polstead when his brother Thomas drowned, attempting to cross a frozen pond. Porter's father and three brothers all died within 18 months of each other, and he only remained to run the farm with his mother. Thomas wished to keep his relationship with Martin a secret, but she gave birth to their child in 1827, and at the age of 25, was apparently keen that she and Thomas would marry. The child died. Later reports suggest that he or she may have been murdered, but Thomas apparently still intended to marry Maria. That summer, in the presence of their stepmother, Anne Martin, Thomas suggested that she and would meet him at the Red Barn, from where he proposed that they would elope to Ipswich. She claimed that she had heard rumors that the parish officers were going to prosecute Maria Martin for having a bastard child. Thomas initially suggested that they elope on a Wednesday evening, but later decided to delay until the Thursday evening. 
On Thursday, he was again delayed after his brother fell ill, mentioning as a reason for some sources, although most of them claim that his brothers were dead by this time. However, on Friday, May 18th, 1827, Thomas appeared at the Martins' cottage during the day, and according to Anne, he had told her stepdaughter that they were to leave at once, and as she heard from the local constable, had obtained a warrant to prosecute her. No warrant had been obtained, but it's not known if Thomas was either lying or mistaken. Maria Martin was worried that she could not leave in broad daylight, but Thomas told her that she could and she should just dress as in a man's clothing, and it would avert suspicion. He would also carry her things to the Red Barn and change before they continued on to Ipswich. Shortly after Thomas left the house, Maria Martin set out with him to the Red Barn, which was situated on Barnfield Hill, about a half a mile from Maria Martin's cottage. This is the last time she was ever seen alive. Now, Thomas also disappeared, but later turned up and claimed that Maria was in Ipswich or some other place nearby, and that he could not yet bring her back as his wife's fear uh, provoking anger to his friends and relatives. The pressure was on, and the pressure was strictly on Thomas to produce his wife. Eventually, it forced him to leave the area. He wrote letters to the Martins claiming that they were married and living on the Isle of Wight, uh, which he gave various excuses for their lack of communication, that she was unwell, excuses that she had hurt her hand, or that the letter must have been lost. Suspicion continued to grow, and Martin's stepmother now, at this time, began talking of dreams that Maria came to her, telling her that she had been murdered and buried in the Red Barn. On April 19, 1828, she persuaded her husband to go to the Red Barn and dig in one of the grain storage bins. He quickly uncovered the remains of his daughter buried in a sack. She was badly decomposed, but still identifiable. An inquest was carried out at the Clock Inn at Polstead, which still stands today, and Martin was formally identified by her sister Anne in some physical characteristics. Her hair and some of the clothing were recognizable, and she was also known to be missing a tooth which was absent from the jawbone of the corpse. Evidence was uncovered to implicate Thomas Corder as uh, being part of the crime. His green handkerchief was discovered around the body's neck. Thomas was easily discovered, and uh, the constable in Polstead was able to obtain his old address from a friend. His name was Ayers. Ayers was assisted by James Lee, an officer in London police, who later led the investigation into spring Jack, which is another story. They tracked Corder to Everly Grove House, which was a boarding house for ladies in Brentford. He was running the boarding house with his new wife, Mary Moore, whom at the time he met through a Lonely Hearts advertisement and that he had placed in the Times, which had received about more than 100 replies due to some research. Judith Flanders states that in her 2011 book, that Corder also placed advertisements in the Morning Herald and the Stun Sunday Times. He received more than 40 replies in the Monday Herald and 53 from the Sunday Times that he had never picked up. The letters were subsequently published by George Foster in 1828. 
Now, James Leah managed to gain entry under the pretext that he wished to board his daughters there, and he surprised Thomas in the parlor. Thomas Hardy noted that the Corset County Chronicle reported that his capture was, quote, in the parlor with four ladies at breakfast, in dressing gown, and had a watch before him by which he was minuting the uh, boiling of some eggs, end quote. Leah took Corder to one side and informed him of the charges, but he denied all knowledge of even knowing the both Martin and of the crime. A search of the house uncovered a pair of pistols supposedly belong and bought the day of the murder. Some letters from Mr. Gardner, from which it contained warnings about the discovery of the crime, and a passport from the French ambassador, all evidence suggesting that Corder may have been preparing to flee. Now, Thomas Corder at his trial was taken back to Su Suffolk, uh, where he was tried at the Shire Hall Ferry in uh, St. Edmunds. The trial started August 7th, and having been put back several days because of the interest of the case had to be generated. The hotels at Barry, said Edmonds, began to fill up uh, from as early as July 21st, and admittance to the court was uh, by ticket only because of the large numbers of who wanted to view the trial. Now, despite this, the judge and court officials still had to push their way bodily through the crowds that had gathered throughout the door. The judge was Chief Baron of the Exker, William Alexander, who was unhappy with the coverage that had been given to the case by the press to, quote, manifest detriment of the prisoner at the bar. The Times, nevertheless, congratulated the public for showing good sense in aligning themselves against Thomas, who entered a plea of not guilty. Now, Martin's exact cause of death couldn't be established, and it was thought that the sharp instrument had been pledged into her eye socket, possibly Thomas's short sword, but this wound could have been caused by the father's spade when he was exhuming the body. Strangulation could not be ruled out, as Thomas's handkerchief was discovered around her neck. To add to the confusion, the wounds of her body suggested that she had been shot. An indictment charged Tom with murdering Maria Martin by feloniously and willingfully shooting her with a pistol through the body and likewise stabbing her with a dagger. To avoid any chance of a mistrial, he was indicted on nine charges, including one of forgery. Anne Martin was given, uh, called to give evidence at the event for the day of uh, Maria's disappearance, and later she talked about her dreams. Thomas Martin then told the court how he had dug up his own daughter, and Maria's 10-year-old brother George revealed that he had seen Thomas with a loaded pistol before the alleged murder, and later had seen him walking from the barn with a pickaxe. Leah gave evidence concerning Thomas's arrest and the objects found during the search of his home. Now, the prosecution suggested that Thomas had never wanted to marry Maria, but that through her knowledge of some of his criminal dealings had given her hold over him, and that his theft of the money uh, that was sent by the child's father had been a source of tension between them. Thomas had given his own version of the events. He admitted that he'd been in the barn with Maria, but said that he had left after they had an argument. After this quick message, we'll be right back. 
If this is your first time tuning in, I encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the other episodes, as well as what we have coming up in the next few weeks. He claimed that he heard a pistol shot while he was walking away from the barn, and that he ran back to the barn to find her dead with one of his pistols beside her. Thomas pleaded with the jury to give him the benefit of the doubt. But after they retired, it only took them 35 minutes to return with a guilty verdict. Baron Alexander sentenced him to hang and afterwards be dissected. Quote, That you be taken back to prison from whence you came, and that you be taken from thence on Monday next to the place of execution, and that you are there to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body shall afterwards be dissected and atomatized, and may that Lord God Almighty and his infinite goodness have mercy on your soul. Thomas spent the next three days in prison agonizing over whether to confess to the crime and make a clean breast of his sins before God. He finally confessed after entries from his wife, several meetings with the prison chaplain, and pleas from both his warder and John Audridge, the governor of the prison. Thomas strongly denied stabbing her, but claimed that he had accidentally shot her in the eye after they argued while she was changing out of her disguise. On August 11th, Thomas was taken to the gallows in Barry St. Edmunds, apparently too weak to stand without support. He was hanged shortly before noon in front of a large crowd. One newspaper claimed that there were 7,000 spectators. However, another said there was many as 20,000. At the prompting of the prison governor, just before the hood was drawn over his head, he said, I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate, and may God have mercy on my soul. Thomas's body was cut down after an hour by the hangman, John Foxton, who claimed his trousers and stockings according to his rights. The body was then taken back to the courtroom in Shire Hill, where it was slid open along the abdomen to expose the muscles. The crowds were allowed to file past until about 6 o'clock when the doors were shut. Now, according to the Norwich and the Barry Post, over 5,000 people queued to see the body. The following day, the dissection and postmortem were carried out in front of an audience of students from Cambridge University and physicians. Reports circulated around Barry St. Edmunds that the uh, galvatic battery had been brought uh, to brought in from Cambridge, and that it was likely that the group experimented with galvanism on the body, uh, which is a battery that was attached to Corder's limbs to demonstrate the contraction of his muscles. The sternum was open and the internal organs examined. There was some discussion of whether or not the cause of death was suffocation, as it was reported that Thomas's chest uh, was seen to rise and fall several minutes after it had dropped. It, though it was thought probable, the pressure of the spinal cord had killed him. The skeleton had to be reassembled after the dissection, and it was not possible to examine the brain. So the surgeons contended themselves with the uh, phrenological examination of Thomas's skull. The skull was asserted to be profoundly developed in the areas of, quote, secretiveness, acquisiveness, constructiveness, philoprogenitiveness, and intimidiveness, all little evidence of being malevolence or variation. 
The bust of Thomas held by the Moyes Hall Museum in Barry St. Edmunds is the original made by a child by child of Bungay as a tool for the study of Thomas's phrenology. Several copies of Thomas's death mask were made, and a replica of one is still held at the Moises Hall Museum. His widow advertised the sale of the glasses he purportedly wore during the trial in a snuff box of Maria's likeness. Artifacts from the trial, some of which were Thomas's possessions, also have been held at the museum. Another replica mask was kept in the dungeon of Norwich Castle. Porter's skin was tanned by surgeon George Creed and used to bind an account of the murder. This can also be found on display at the Moises Hall Museum. Thomas Corder's skeleton was reassembled, exhibited, and used as a teaching aid at the West Suffolk Hospital. The skeleton was put on display in the Hunterian Museum in the Royal College of Surgeons of England, where it was hung beside that of Jonathan Wilde. In 2004, Porter's bones were removed and cremated. Now, after the trial, doubts were raised on both the story of Anne's dreams and the fate of Thomas and Maria's child. Anne was only about a year older than Maria, and it was suggested that she and Thomas were having an affair, and that, that the two had planned the murder to dispose of Maria so that it would continue without an hindrance. Anne's dreams only started only a few days after Thomas married Moore, and it was suggested that jealousy was her motive for revealing the body's resting place and that her dreams were simply subterfuge. Further rumors circulated about the death of Thomas and Maria's child. Both claimed that they had taken their dead child to be buried at Sudbury, but no records of this could be discovered and no trace was ever found of the child's burial site. In his written confession, Thomas admitted that he and Maria were uh, having an argument on the day of the murder over the possibility of the burial site being discovered. In 1976, Donald McCormick wrote The Red Barn Mystery, which brought out a connection between Thomas and a forger and a serial killer, Thomas Griffiths, Wainwright, which when the former was in London at the time. According to McCormick, Caroline Palmer, an actress who had appeared frequently in a melodrama based on the Red Barn case, had also been researching the murder and concluded that Thomas may have not killed Maria at all, but a local gypsy woman might have been the killer. However, McCormick's research has also been brought into question over other police and crime-related stories, and this information has not even been generally accepted. The case had all the elements to ignite a fervent of popular interest. The wicked squire, a poor girl, an iconic murder scene, supernatural element to the stepmother's prophetic dreams, and even the detective work by Ayers and Leah, who later became a single character called Feroz Lee in the stage versions of the events. And Quarter's new life that had to result of the Lonely Hearts advertisements. As a consequence, the case created its own small industry, Plays were being performed while Thomas was still waiting trial, and the anonymous author published a melodramatic version of the murder after his execution. A prosecutor at the Newgate novels, which quickly became bestsellers, the Red Barn murder was a popular subject, along with the story of Jack Shepard and other highwaymen, thieves and murderers, for penny gaffs, 
cheap plays performed in the back rooms of public houses and the like. James Katnich sold more than a million broadsides, which are sensationalist single-sheet newspapers, uh, which gave details of Thomas's confession and execution, and also included a sentimental ballad supposedly written by Thomas himself, though it was more likely to have been a work of Katnich and somebody else under his employ. It was one of the last five ballads about the crime to have appeared directly following the execution. Now, many different versions of the events were set down and distributed due to the excitement around the trial and to the public demand for entertainment based on the murder, making it hard for modern readers to discern fact from melodramatic embellishments. Good official records exist of this trial, and the best record that we could find of the events surrounding the case is generally considered to be that of James Curtis, who was a journalist at the time and spent most of his time with Thomas and two weeks in Polstead interviewing those concerned. He was apparently so connected to the case that the newspaper artist who was asked to produce the picture of the accused man drew a likeness of Curtis instead of Thomas himself. Pieces of the rope which were used to hang Thomas sold for a guinea each. Part of his scalp was, uh, with an ear still attached, was displayed at a shop in Oxford Street, and a lock of Martin's hair sold for two guineas. Polstead became a tourist venue, with visitors traveling far as the field as Ireland. Curtis estimated around 200,000 people visited Polstead in 1828 alone. The Red Barn and the Martin's Cottage excited particular interest, and the barn was even stripped for souvenirs, down to the planks, before being removed from the sides, broken up, and sold as toothpicks. It was stated uh, to be demolished after the trial anyway, but it was left standing and eventually burned down in 1842. Even Martin's gravestone in the churchyard at St. Mary's Polstead was eventually chipped away to nothing by uh, nothing but souvenir hunters, only a sign of a shed now marks the approximate place where it stood, although her name is given to the Martins Lane in the village. Pottery models and sketches were also sold and songs were composed, including one quoted of Vaughn Williams' opera, Hugh the Drover, and five variants of Divas and Lazarus. Thomas's skeleton again was put on display in a glass case at the West Suffolk Hospital and apparently was rigged with a mechanism that made its arm point to a collection box when it was approached. Eventually, uh, the skull was removed by a Dr. John Kilner, who wanted to add it to his extensive collection of Red Barn mem memorabilia. After a series of unfortunate events, Kilner became convinced that the skull was cursed and handed it to a friend named Hopkins. Further disasters plagued both men, and they finally paid for the skull to be given to a Christian burial in an attempt to lift the supposed curse. Now, interest from this case did not quickly fade. The play, Maria Martin, or The Murder of the Red Barn, existed in various anonymous versions. It was a sensational hit throughout the mid-19th century, and had been made most performed play of all time. Victorian fairground peep shows were forced to add extra apertures to the viewers uh, when exhibiting the shows of the murder. The plays of the Victorian era tend to portray Thomas as a cold-blooded monster and Maria Martin as an innocent whom he preyed upon. Her reputation and her children by other fathers were airbrushed out, and Thomas was made into an older man. 
Charles Dickens himself published an account of the murder in his magazine all the year round after initially rejecting it because he felt the story to be too well known and the account of the stepmother's dreams rather far-fetched. There's even a folk song called Maria Martin or The Murder of Maria Martin, which tells the story of the murder. The Lincolnshire folk singer Joseph Taylor sang the fragment of the song Percy Granger in 1908. Granger recorded the performance in a wax cylinder, which was used to digitize and then can now be heard via the British Library Sound Archive website. Taylor sings the following lyrics to the tune of Divas and Lazarus. If you'll meet me at the Red Barn, as sure as I have life, I will take you to Ipswich Town, where I'll make you my wife. The lad went home and fetched his gun, his pickaxe, and his spade, and he went into the Red Barn, where he dug her grave. With her heart so light, she thought no harm to meet her love did go. He murdered her, all the barn, and he laid her body low. Several other versions of this song were recorded, including one of Billy List's Brutish Suffolk Band, which can be heard in the British Library Sound Archive website as well. These recordings appear to be based on popular versions printed on broadsides in the mid-19th century. Now, the fascination of this story continued into the 20th century with five film versions, including a film in 1935, 1980 BBC drama, and more. The story has been dramatized for radio numerous times, including two radio programs by Slaughter, one broadcast on BBC Regional in 1934 and another in 1939. A fictionalized account of the murder was produced in 1953 for the CBS radio show Crime Classics, entitled The Killing of William Corder and the Farmer's Daughter. Now, if this story does sound familiar, I actually had an episode very similar to this long time ago called The Greenbrier Ghost. That was an American murder case in which the murderer was alleged to be revealed again by a victim's ghost. So, let me know. Did you like the similarities between these stories? It's pretty interesting that a lot of these ghost stories really come from like the 1800s, 1900s. Uh, Of course, as more technology and forensics became available, less and less testimony from the dead have uh, been admissible. Now, there were a lot of cases back in the 90s and 80s that I remember, uh, like Sylvia Brown, for example, the psychic who helps solve cases. But again, a lot of the psychics sound a little bit more sensationalized and, and, and in my opinion, crooks preying upon victims and telling them what they want to hear after doing their own research. But I don't know. I'm a skeptic. You tell me. Do you have any cases in which a psychic had helped solve a case that is actually legitimate uh, and not just hearsay or someone actually looking into doing their own research and then trying to come up with it as if a ghost or the other side is telling them? Let me know. Reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'd be more than happy to reply to that. And as always, thank you very much for listening. My name is DJ. This is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Good night. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community, hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. 
For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment, cancel any time. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.